If you are looking for the front page of DeFi, look no further than Zerion.io. Zerion is your home base for managing your DeFi portfolios. Zerion offers a central place for you to engage with all of the DeFi protocols and assets that you engage with on a daily basis, but all in one central spot. Here you can see I've loaded up a wallet and Zerion is giving me the portfolio performance of all the assets in this wallet over time, as well as a breakdown of all the assets that I own, as well as all of my transaction history that I've ever done in an easy to view fashion. Zerion also lets you invest right into DeFi's best yielding financial opportunities right from their homepage. Zerion also makes it super easy to access interest in DeFi using applications like Compound and Aave in the background. And you can also exchange your assets using the Zerion app, using an exchange aggregator in the background to make sure that you always get the best rates. You can even use the Zerion mobile wallet to add your MetaMask or Argent or another Ethereum address right into your mobile wallet so you can see your portfolio and engage in DeFi on the go. Here I just loaded up my Argent wallet and now I'm going to load up my MetaMask as well. And Zerion will do the same thing. It will add all of my assets and wallets together all in one space and give me a portfolio summary of what's going on. Adding wallets is trivially easy. If you already have a MetaMask, you can get it right into the Zerion app and it can sync with your desktop app as well. And the best part is you can also buy Ether right into the app itself. Use the invest tab to look at all the things that you have invested in as well as other opportunities. And coming soon to the Zerion app is the ability to buy and sell your assets straight from your mobile device as well. So download the app. It works on iOS and Android. Go to Zerion.io, plug in your wallets and get a historical report of your portfolio over time, as well as a comprehensive breakdown of all the assets that you own and how much yield they're generating for you. We're also brought to you by Monolith. Monolith is your cool new DeFi account, your DeFi savings account, your DeFi checking account. Except the cool thing about the Monolith DeFi account is that it gets software updates, right? You actually get to increase the usefulness of this over time. So here are some of the features. Monolith is a smart contract wallet with a lot of the features that you would expect if you've come to know DeFi and what it is, you can you can add money to it. You can put that money to work uh, in Compound and, and accessing yield. Uh, but you can and you can also swap through Uniswap. What was cool with Monolith is that they will send you a very sexy Monolith Visa card that connects to your smart Monolith smart contract wallet on Ethereum. So it's a really awesome tool to live a bankless life with a, a, a savings account that gets software updates. So this is, this is something that you're never going to find out in the real world, but you can still do real world things with you know real money in, like buy your groceries. So that's just fantastic. Coming soon to Monolith, actually already here to Monolith, is now you can buy DAI and get it sent to your wallet directly, right? So it's also being an on-ramp. So you don't have to go through your centralized exchange like Coinbase or Gemini or wherever. You can just go straight from your bank account right into your Monolith checking account smart contract wallet. So check them out at monolith.xyz. Nation, welcome to another episode of State of the Nation. This is where we go through what's happening for the week and talk about the most important things. We have a special guest today who was recently back from his Twitter hiatus. That's Eric Connor. Super excited to talk to him today, David. It is War Effort Week, my friend. Mm -hmm. So, what does that mean? Why are we bringing Eric Connor on? What are we going to talk about? 
Yeah, we are bringing Eric Connor on because Eric Connor has been in the Ethereum community since day one. I, I kind of have given him this label, which I don't know if he accepts or not. So we're going to ask him the Ethereum's unofficial community manager. He's the guy to me. He's the guy that like kept the campfire lit during the darkest of nights during the 2018 and 2019 bull mar or bear market. He was the guy that kept us focused, uh, kept on beating the same drum about like what what were, were we here to do? Like what is Ethereum here to do? And regardless of the price action, uh, the same message came out of Eric Connor's Twitter the whole way through. And so I think that's a really valuable add to the ecosystem. And I kind of want to get Eric's take on how the community has progressed and developed. And now that staking is here, what that means for Ethereum and its community. Uh, because you, me and you, Ryan, we definitely have our takes as to what staking means when it comes to um, the relationship between people and code. And I want to get Eric's take on that as well. All right. So what happens when you get three ether megabulls together <laughs> for a conversation? We are about to have, we're about to find out. So if you're new to State of the Nation, this comes live to you on YouTube every Tuesday at about 2 p.m. Eastern, a little bit after sometimes we try to do 2 p.m. And then it's also released on the podcast. So you can catch it in audio form as well. As David mentioned today, we're talking about staking the war effort, ether's community and culture. Um, and also, before we get into this, Dave, we should talk about some things that are happening in the Bankless Nation at itself. So we had Michael Sonnenschein on from uh, Grayscale, which is not a 100% bankless product, but it is bringing billions of dollars right now into crypto, into both Ether, the asset, and into Bitcoin. That was a pretty hot interview that dropped on Monday. What were some of your takeaways? Yeah, absolutely. The, the Grayscale, the whole institution of Grayscale is what we call like the bridge to crypto, right? It is how value gets onboarded into the crypto world. Grayscale is just acting as the, the bridge onto the arc, right? We are building this system to get everyone onboarded. And so that was pretty valuable. Uh, and in getting Grayscale's, like the take of what Grayscale is uh, for retail uh, and how it is serving the needs of the industry was really valuable to me. We are also having Balaji on. I think we're recording tomorrow, David. Yeah. I am locked and loaded for that conversation. Um, lots of cool things, including, I think, some announcements maybe from Balaji. The theme is going to be, of course, crypto, DeFi, but also this idea that we've been playing with so long is digital nations and how crypto empowers that. So do not miss mm -hmm. that episode coming out next Monday. I can't tell you what's gonna be in it because we don't know yet, we haven't recorded it, <laughs> but I know it's gonna be hot. Mm -hmm. I know it's gonna be a good one. Also, David, we've got our mega meme post mm -hmm. coming out tomorrow. We issued a call to action around ETH staking to join the war effort on Monday. And Wednesday is going to be a continuation of that. We're, we're dropping some propaganda, we're dropping mm -hmm. some memes, David, while you're talking about this post, should I give a quick tease? To yeah, some of the memes we yeah you got it ready? Do it, absolutely. I'm going to do some tease. You set us up the, what is this conversation? What is the post going to be about? Yeah, so this is this is a concept I've been chewing on a lot. And it's another topic that I want to get into it with with Eric here in a second. But it's, it's the relationship between the values of the blockchain and the community that it garners around it, right? And so each, there are values baked into each and every blockchain protocol that we know of. Like for the, there are values in a 21 million proof of work hard cap currency that attracts a certain cohort of people, right? There are also values in maximally uh, lowering the barrier to entry for blockchain validation. And that is what Ethereum strives for. And so I want to, I, I, I 
use a thought. Uh, 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 I use this article to uh, like peel back the layers on that and try to understand how these values of Ethereum impact the community that it generates around it, right? And it all comes back to the ability to stake your ether, and that's the call to action that we're going with in this in the article. There's a bunch of these graphics and gifts that we're going to just dump all at once to be spread and shared amongst the community, kind of as like a community rallying cry, like a community totem to to share and, and just you know have a shared narrative that we all believe in and you know pictures are worth a thousand words so we made a bunch of these graphics so we're going to dump them all out on the bankless newsletter tomorrow this is one that's coming out tomorrow as well i think there's going to be like half a dozen yeah. of these i want you captain america to buy eth bonds now it fits with that whole ether as an internet bond theme that we've been talking about for so long and the digital nation theme so on monday we ask you to stake your eth and i think tomorrow we're going to ask you to meme your stake right? We want to spread these <laughs> memes far and wide as well to get the community fired up for staking. Uh, David, I think that's that's what's going on right now. Should we, uh, should we get to the question I ask you Let's always? I'm ready for it. I'm just going to do that. All right. What is the state of the nation right now, my friend? The state of the nation is crescendoing. We are crescendoing. And you can see that like all states of the nations that we come up with, there's so many different ways to see it, uh, it playing out. You can see it in the crypto price actions in the crypto markets. The price charts are just painting a big fat crescendo. Uh, Nick Carter recently tweeted out back when Bitcoin was like 14K or 15K. Um, that this was the quietest bull market ever. Now Bitcoin is at like 18K-ish and we see it on N uh, CNBC. And so we're starting to see the trend, like Maisie Williams, Arya Stark tweeted out about Bitcoin the other day. <laughs> we're starting to see like the bubbling in- She's cool again now, yeah, after that disaster cool of a season. Yeah. She's cool, okay. Meanwhile, we're watching the green bar of the ETH deposited into this deposit contract, moving faster and faster towards the finish line. There's a lot of things that just feel like crescendoing and I can't wait for that, uh, that gong to hit at the very end when there's the big bang. Uh, and so that, that's something that I'm looking forward to. And that is what the state of the nation is. Crescendoing up. And uh, you mentioned Nick Carter. David, is Nick Carter your favorite Bitcoiner? Be honest. Yeah, he, he's my favorite Bitcoiner because if you ask right. him, am I, am I a Bitcoiner? He makes you define your terms first and rather than just puts on like the Bitcoiner caps and says, yeah, I'm a Bitcoiner, whatever that You know means. how I know too, is because we've invited him on the show so many times mm -hmm. and we're actually going to have him on the show on uh, Tuesday, next to the nation mm -hmm. to talk about Bitcoin and price mm -hmm. and all the cool things going on from an adoption perspective there. But today's show is not about Bitcoin. It is about <laughs> Ether. It is about rallying the troops. So we have Eric Connor, who I'm sure you guys know, if you've been in the bankless community long enough, if you've been in the Ethereum community, he is the co-host of the ETH Hub podcast. He was formerly product at Gnosis. He is, as David said, I don't know if he'll accept this title, but we think of it as Ethereum's unofficial community manager, Eric. Thank you for joining us back from your Twitter hiatus, just in time for the launch of the ETH2 network. How's it going, man? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's well going good, guys. <laughs> How's it going? I think this is my, uh, this, I know this is my first bankless appearance, which seems strange given I, how many episodes have been put out between, you know, the two of all three of us, but I'm uh, very excited. To yeah, be here. absolutely. I think we were uh, afraid to put too many ETH bulls on one show because like, I mean, who knows? It is, yeah, we it is dangerous. It. We were saving it for now. <laughs> <laughs> we're saving it for such a moment as this. <laughs> All right. So, so, you know, first question, Eric, what do you think of that uh, David's title he's given you? Ethereum's unofficial community manager. I feel like you like, much like David and myself, kind of like don't really 
have a traditional job. Like you don't work for a company, but like you almost work for the protocol or like a set of protocols. Uh, what do you, what do you think of that, that, that title? Do you accept? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I'll accept it. I, I think it's a title I couldn't give myself, right? It has to come from other people. And I think there's multiple unofficial community managers, right? But I, yeah, I definitely agree. What, what's funny about that is it's also a niche I never th- thought or expected I would fall into, right? It just kind of like happened. Like my background's in finance and I found Ethereum. I was interested in building DEXs. That's how I got initially interested in Ethereum. And then like all of a sudden... I saw this, you know, I've been in it kind of since the beginning and I saw this wave of euphoria through the first bull market and Ethereum didn't have a bear market, right? Until 2018. So we went like years without having a real bear market. We had the Dow hack and like the DDoS attacks and it went from like 20 to six or whatever, but we never had like a prolonged bear market. And you saw this like euphoria fade and the community like kind of going to shambles and people disappear. Um, just like price went down 90%. It felt like the community shrunk 90%. Um, and then there was just this like relentless FUD from other communities and whatnot about ETH and Ethereum. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of like fell into this odd niche. I never thought I would around like education and rallying the community and stuff. So yeah, I'll accept it, but I will say, I think there's, there's multiple of us out there. I think you guys are included in that as well. Um, and yeah, no one's like paying us per se to do this, but I think we all share a similar passion. You know what? I never expected to be doing uh bankless and like what I'm doing today. I think probably David feels kind of the same, but um, like your story, your and Anthony's story around ETHUB is I think similar to the story of bankless is just like started bankless because um, I was pissed off <laughs> to be honest. Like I was mad that all of this amazing stuff was going on in um, Ethereum, this whole side of crypto. And I saw that uh, Ethereum was not going away. It was actually getting stronger. And like, no one was talking about it. But I felt like the the, the roots of this movement uh, and the value system of this movement I most resonated with uh, was alive and well in the Ethereum community. And, you know, I just wanted to like, start that down that path. Right. And I think that's why, you know, David's doing this too, but, but is that why you kind of start, fell into it? It's basically like, no one was, no one was doing it. You just, you just found a gap that you could fill and you stepped up and you made things happen. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, right? Like if you thought of Ethereum as like a company, there would be PR teams, there'd be marketing teams that doesn't exist for Ethereum, right? And it's- Ethereum started very dev and tech heavy. And honestly, like the first few years were a little weird. Like I don't have a dev background. It was a, not hostile, but weird to be like a financial background that didn't know how to code in this space. Yeah. Um, so it took a while for people that weren't didn't have a dev background to kind of find their spot in the community, right? Beyond just being an investor or, you know, using the network or whatever. So normally if Ethereum was a company, they would have people kind of backing them up, fighting off misinformation, marketing, and that just didn't exist. And it felt like a pretty easy hole to fill, right? And it definitely comes out of these wars between different chains. Like at the time it was Bitcoin and ETH. Now I kind of see ETH as fighting off quote unquote, Ethereum killers or what attempted murderers, as I call them. But um, at the time, it was a lot of misinformation between the Bitcoin and Ethereum community, which has slowed down a little bit now. Um, But yeah, there was just no one doing it. And if you're passionate about something and you see it being attacked, especially with a lot of misinformation, right? Your natural instinct is to kind of want to defend that. Um, And at the same time, 
no one was really doing like education, right? And I consider like Ethub and the documentation and all the podcasts we do and what you guys are doing with Bankless, that's education. But at the end of the day, it's really like fighting misinformation, right? Which could also be grouped into marketing and all this stuff. And I'm glad this side of the community has been built out. Um, and I, one of the coolest things I've seen over the last few years in the Ethereum community is this shift from just a dev heavy focus to appreciating people with a bunch of different backgrounds, investors, educators, you know, pe people with marketing expertise, operations expertise, product management, project management, whatever it is, right? I think that's helped us mature as, you know, a protocol in a space. I feel like, uh, like Eric, that one thing is um, that, I mean, Ethereum used to be primarily dev focused, right? In terms of like attention, like technology. And you were one of the first people that I saw in the space um, talking about monetary policy and issuance policy. And I found like that so refreshing mm -hmm. because I couldn't get my head wrapped around just the pure uh, tech focus in Ethereum's culture. Like tech is important, but at the end of the day, what we're building is a social movement. What we're building is not just a computer or a database, but an economic computer, an economic database. And there was like this complete lack of discussion around the economics of the thing. Like I remember um, you were one of the first people to actually like map out Ether's issuance policy mm -hmm. long-term, like taking into account things like ETH too. So, um, you know, that that is so important. And the Bitcoin community has had this down for like years. Right. In fact, like, their technology is stagnated, but I would argue their their social movement and um, like their writing, uh, talking about Bitcoin is that yeah. the narrative layer. Yeah, exactly, David. That's really been thriving over the past five years while technology has been dormant. So um, I'm glad you stepped up to the plate, man. It's super useful. Now we've never had that going to a bull run, right? Like Ethereum has not had a strong narrative layer, and now I feel like we do. And I wonder where that's going to take us. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting looking back, right? Like early 2014, 2015, Ethereum community was, hey, it was basically we know and we want to do more than what Bitcoin is willing to do. And yes. Bitcoin had cemented into the, their narrative, but they weren't going to like really expand beyond that, right? So there was this group of people that said, hey, we want to do more. And it took a while to decide a what that is right we started like world computer which i still hate that i know some people <laughs> like it but it's too broad right for me it was always DeFi that attracted me and i'll i'll fight to the end of the day like when i first read the white paper for ethereum i saw and thought of DeFi, right and so we went into this like weird world computer narrative and We're i think gonna decentralized on, facebook kind of thing yeah exactly which i just don't personally see happening maybe someday once we get scaling and all that but um you know the community was just kind of messy and no one was talking about the monetary policy and i just got to thinking like okay everyone wants to work on this be funded to work on it we need to make sure there's a monetary premium so that the underlying asset goes up right and or at least tries to go up or has a good narrative for going up um because we all want to Kind of work on this and you know developers want to get paid to work on it and we can't just have a willy-nilly monetary policy and really the, the only thing was like there's a blog post from joe lubin in like 2014 that there's just like a graph of eth, eth issuance where if it's five eth per block what does it look like and no one was talking about okay, how much do miners really have to be paid? Let's look at the fee side of things as well, which, you know, 1559 is a part of now. But uh, yeah, it was interesting that no one 
really thought about that for the first two or three years, but I think it also proves just how early we are in this stuff. The, uh, the monetary policy is a fascinating conversation. And like Ryan said, it's because of, of what you've done at Ethub that it got pushed into the forefront. But, and I want to return there. But first, I kind of want to talk about what the Ethereum community was kind of like at Genesis, right? At 2015, 2016, before we kind of really figured it out, right? And I, I remember a tweet from you, Eric, that came out a while ago, um, or, or some messaging in some capacity that was along the lines of like, the 2018-2019 the bear market was the time where the Ethereum community, the, the users and the investors and the builders all kind of came together, right? These used to be separate groups and now they are kind of having one, they're moving as one unit. Can you kind of talk about uh, what was what was it like before that transition? What was it like after that transition? And why is that? Why is it getting everyone on the same page important at all? Yeah. So I think early on it was all these grand ideas with no idea how to really execute them, right? So I'll take like I was thinking about building EtherX, which was the first stab at like a decentralized exchange, and we had this great idea, but like the tech was nowhere close. We didn't know how we were going to do the incentive side of things, where we're going to do a token, where we're going to take fees. And so you kind of saw these like huge ideas, but you already saw this fracture in the community. So first of all, it was all on Reddit, right? Like there was no Ethereum Twitter at all. So it was all on Reddit. And at the time it was uh, ETH Trader and um, our Ethereum. So you already had this split of investors and the tech side, right? And the devs. And I remember, and it still is kind of like this, but all price talk is banned on our Ethereum, right? And I'm thinking like all these people on our Ethereum are talking about building these great ideas. They want users. They want to make a lifestyle of this, but they're not even considering price or investors, right? You need people to invest in this thing for it to be sustainable long-term. And in fact, like that it's core to the economic security, the security model of right. the entire system. Like exactly. the price of ETH matters for security reasons, to prevent double spends, mm -hmm. to prevent yep, attacks. Exactly. And it, it's still almost to this day, I think as a community, we're getting better. I still kind of see a neglect to this today, but it was totally separated in the back, kind of like, why do we care about price? Let's put this to the side. So I think what we, so also it was very just dev focused where there wasn't really, you know, developers did build this protocol. They helped more than anybody kind of get us to where we are today. But I think what the community realized after the ICOs in 17 are, hey, we also need like product people. We need mm -hmm. operations people, marketing people to actually build products that people want. Like we can just think of these products and build them for ourselves, but do people actually want to use them, right? And so I think what we learned through the bear is, hey, we, this is a community effort. Like we need expertise. Like it's not like, abnormal that the rest of the world works in groups of expertise we should probably follow a similar suit yeah totally and and how would you characterize the community now like what problems have we really solved that that we kind of figured out yeah no i mean i think ryan just kind of hit it on the head is i think we've come to realize the importance of the monetary policy and securing the network i think that's been the biggest breakthrough we've had we've gone from five eth per block to two and the network's still secure i mean obviously when eth price went from one dollar to 1400 we should be thinking about changing issuance right we don't need to be paying miners you know 50 times more than they deserve to make and so i think We've realized that investors are important, 
developers are important. All these different groups are important. Um, and I, I don't think, I don't see that split anymore. I think most debates we see, every side is considered anymore. And I think we even see that on the E2 launch, there's been a lot of, you know, it's very tech heavy, but we've also seen a lot of discussion about what the issue should look like. What does the rewards curve look like? How much ETH do we need stake to get there? You know, how is the merge going to look? So we're, we're considering all these different aspects and, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me it's taking years and it's going to take more because it's, it's just a more complex system than a Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin kind of just has to focus on the monetary policy and the simplicity. And when you start adding all these other variables, it takes time, especially in a decentralized community, right? Um, it takes time to figure this stuff out. And then how about the community's relationship with staking? Because staking has been in uh, the ethos or the commitments of Ethereum since day one. But what the community has perceived staking to be has changed. Like once upon a time, you used to need 1,500 Ether to stake, right? That used to be the number. And before it got lowered down to 32, and there were different attitudes. Oh my God, just, I almost forgot about that, right? by the way, dude. Really high number, right? <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. It's like, oh, well, okay, a- I guess I'm only ever using staking pools. Like, <laughs> damn. Uh, so, so Eric, like, how has like the, the community changed or, or understood staking to be whatever it is? Like, has that changed over time? You know, I think the social contract has always been there. It's funny to me still when I see people like concerned about miners POW at this point on Ethereum, because like, it's not even, it's never been part of the social contract. We've always known that we're going to proof of stake. I, I, you know, I get some heat for this. I don't know why we even consider the feelings of miners at this point. It's just not in my interest. They're being kind of weighted out and that's been part of the social contract. So, you know, I think that's always been there. Um, But yeah, you know, it shifted a lot. One of the more painful moments was I think like early 2018 when like the proof of stake roadmap as was, was completely scrapped and kind of rebuilt into what we're getting now, which is the beacon chain and the different phases we're seeing. You know, that was definitely a painful moment as an ease investor because we've been waiting, you know, four, five, six years now for this to happen. At the end of the day, it paid off, right? And I talk to you guys all the time offline about this, but this is a long game and it always fascinates me how short-term people think, even though they know it's a long game. This is a multi-decade game, right? And I I, I feel like I have hands of diamonds at this point holding <laughs> onto my bags because I feel like some people flip-flop back and forth every week. So, you know, we're getting there. I think we're weeks away from Genesis block launch and huge props to everybody that's been building that. But yeah, seeing the shifts is interesting. And, you know, you mentioned the 1500 to 32 each change. Like it's amazing what changes with price, right? Mm -hmm. Like price goes from one to 1400. You start rethinking your issuance policy. You start rethinking how much you need to stake, you know, and it changes rewards too. Like staking rewards are way different at a ETH price of 100 versus 10K, right? Mm-hmm. So all of these things need to be considered and all, all chains, even Bitcoin in a way, I know they're not going to, but price determines everything as far as security of the chain, how much you need to stake and all of that. Was you know there what? ever a moment in Ethereum's history where you were like, fuck, what if we never get to ETH2? Um, I don't know if I ever thought we might not get to ETH2. There were definitely some... I would say the hardest as like a long-term investor at this point was like after the Dow, just Mm -hmm. in general sentiment about ETH, because you had like, you had just gone through this huge rally from three bucks to 24. Everyone was hyped, but like on the other side, you know, Bitcoiners and people in other coins were saying, Hey, smart contracts will never be secure. This stuff's impossible. You guys are crazy. Next day the Dow gets hacked and you're kind of like, 
okay you know you have that doubt in the back of your mind like this was our first experiment it got hacked so i don't think i've ever had a moment where i didn't think e2 was going to happen but there's been a couple days especially like after the dow where you're you're questioning your sanity on the overall vision right but i, I think DeFi is totally stomped out any of those you know we can't trust any smart contract fears at this point mm-hmm yeah, I, uh, we, Dave and I commented recently that just like the success of Uniswap alone, okay, so like 24 months from zero to over 4 billion in weekly volume, right? And you're telling me smart contracts don't work and DeFi is not good. I, here, here, here's a system made by one guy with a less than $100,000 grant, his first development project. And within two years, he's doing more volume than Coinbase, right? Like. <laughs> Sorry, guys, like DeFi works, smart contracts work. And like we have data. We had a belief back in 2017 about DeFi, but now we have actual data and use cases. And like we see the success. And I'm almost surprised, Eric, that um, this doesn't have mainstream attention. Like, right. so it's funny to me because um, I see even at the start of the cycle, and we are in a bull market. By the way, I love the seasons of crypto. Right. That's maybe why, like, I love S- Southern California, perfect weather all year <laughs> round. Right. But I live on the East Coast and it's nice to have the seasons. And we get these seasons in crypto where mm-hmm. we get the bull season, we get the bear season. And I enjoy the bear season, to be honest, mm-hmm. because there's builders, there's narratives getting to like, it's friends. the tourists are all gone. Friends. There's friends. You forged like the real community in the bear market. But now we're shifting to summertime again right and it feels good i like that transition too i'm excited for 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 the bull market um but like uh what what's it going to take because i feel like at the start of this bull market bitcoin is going to have the narrative for a little bit right um but like what's happening with DeFi is so incredible right now you the uniswap story alone and no one's really telling it what is this going to take to go get into the mainstream narrative where we start seeing this thing on CNBC and is that going to happen in this bull cycle? Yeah, it's amazing how fast people just like shift, right? Like a year ago, it was, hey, Ethereum has no users. Now it's like, okay, (laughs) well, we're doing billions in volume a day on DeFi. There's billions locked in DeFi and now everyone just like shifts the goalposts constantly, right? And I think, you know, how I see this playing out is Bitcoin probably going for all time high and breaking it. But, you know, the Bitcoin narrative to me is boring. You look at Twitter right now and it's literally just, hey, number went up. Number went up more than two years ago. Hey, look, how many days has number been this high? And it's like, (laughs) okay, that's great. Ari Stark Stark talking about Bitcoin is not like... Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, it's not really a development. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, so I think, you know, that attracts mainstream media potential. The big difference this time for ETH is going to be that we have something tangible to use. It was a lot of promises last time. You know, Crypto Kitties was kind of the thing people caught on to. I think people investing now after, you know, say Bitcoin breaks all time high and, and kind of gets this mainstream media attention, retail investors start looking for alternatives. Now they hop into Ethereum and they say, oh, wow, okay, They're, they've built stuff. You know, I would argue the UX of DeFi is better than traditional finance now. Um, so hopefully gas fees aren't too crazy as people are kind of running into this stuff. And they're going to be kind of blown away, I think. You know, of course, it's still going to be a small subset. Like I said, I still think this is a multi-decade play, not mm-hmm. like a multi-month play. Um, but people are going to realize the power of an alternative financial system and start to play with it and tinker with it. And you're going to capture some people. And I think a Uniswap, an AMM, 
is very unique to DeFi. I think it's one of the products that traditional finance is going to be a bit blown away by. Um, hey, you can just have this like pool of liquidity and all this stuff. And that's a unique product offering when it comes to, you know, DeFi versus traditional finance. Dude, just re- like real quick, like, yeah, your point about UX, right after this, I actually have to go to my local bank and I have to oh, appear rip. in person to like send <laughs> a wire transfer, right? And I have to present so my bad. card and I have to fill out like actual physical paperwork and be there and say, hi, my name is Ryan. And I just want to transfer the money that supposedly I I own mm-hmm. to somewhere else, but I have to ask your permission, pretty please do it. And by the way, you're going to charge me like 30 bucks for doing that. Mm-hmm. It sucks. Right. And like also you're going to be DeFi. wearing a bankless shirt while you do it too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course. I, I got of an course. email from my, I, I've gone all DeFi basically and I got it. So my savings account is pretty much moved on to DeFi just because of the yields over there. And I got an email from my bank two weeks ago. I said, Hey, your balance is too low now in your bank account. We're going to start charging. you." <laughs> <laughs> Please come back, Eric. We'll charge you money until you come back. <laughs> I think right. one of the things it's that makes ridiculous. me so incredibly bullish and, and Uniswap is involved in this conversation and Maker is involved in this conversation is back in um, 2017, 2018, we had nothing sticky on Ethereum. Like ICOs were fleeting, right? Like you come in, you put your token, you put your money into the ICO, you get your token, you hope the token pumps. If it doesn't, like you're out. Um, but then we had Maker come in in uh, December 2017 and Maker was a place for value and capital, capital to be sticky right? Like you could put your capital in Maker and leave it there. You could leave it there and it would do stuff. And same thing with Uniswap. And and one thing that makes me particularly bullish about this cycle is how many more sticky things we have this this cycle than, than we did last time. Like you, we have reasons and incentives for you to come and also stay. And we've never had that before. So I'm really excited to see what happens in this bull cycle when people find that there's actually you know, a, a land out here that people have settled on and there's actually like a, a sustainable way to live a life out here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, in the, you know, the amount of liquidity out there now and kind of the composability between all these apps, I, I think to me, what's going to capture mainstream the most is the ease of moving these funds around, right? Okay. You, say you open a high yield savings account the next week, the bank cuts it from 1% to 0.75%. You want to transfer that out probably requires an in-person thing. It requires multiple days that that doesn't exist, right? I, I hop my yield farms around in 15 seconds and I, there's no monopoly. No one has like a say on what I can do as far as hopping my or moving my money around. And I think that's going to resonate with people and just the ease of how easily you can trade in and out and things. And I think that's going to be what captures people the most, just that, you know, it, it seems like a 10 X improvement to the traditional finance system. Absolutely. Okay. So Eric, now that staking is quote unquote here, like knock on wood, it's like seven days away. Um, and like, we've made it right. Like with the staking, we can basically see staking. It's, it's like right there. Um, how does that make you feel as somebody who's been here around since day one, where we committed to staking and we kind of thought that it was going to be here a lot sooner, but now it is actually here. Like how, how does that make you feel um, now that it's actually arrived? Yeah, it's great. I mean, I think what I'm most impressed by, and I think people underestimate this, is how hard it is to coordinate this effort. It's not necessarily like the tech that was built and like what what's out there smart contract wise and how the beacon chain works. It's coordinating people across the globe to build this and getting 
you know, agreement from the users of the network of, hey, this is what we should build. I think we're even seeing this in like smaller DeFi projects, how hard, it, how hard governance is, how hard decentralized governance is. And we're getting buy-in from the community of, hey, this is the path. And I think E2 struck this perfect line that I liked early on in Ethereum ETH1 of a bit centralized. You've got a couple like central players that really know what they're doing, but also like there's a couple other teams out there and you're getting buy-in from the community. It's just like pseudo decentralized governance that I think protocols need early on. I don't think I'm scared of just going hundred percent hands-off decentralized at the start. So I, I'm impressed that the E2 team teams that are building this we're able to pull it off first and foremost, because it's it's not easy, right? And you know, a lot of people have made the analogy of what if like Apple was building the iPhone in public, right? On like GitHub and they were asking for input of across the nation and stuff, like it would be a disaster. It would take years. And so stuff like this is just gonna take time. Um, you know, it's cool. I'm still cautiously optimistic myself about staking. I put out a tweet a few couple of days ago. Hey, just for now, treat this as another yield farm, in my opinion. Don't like ape in hundred percent of your ETH. Cause there's a, there's a lot of opportunity costs there. Your liquidity is locked up. It's new code. Who knows how long it's going to take until, you know, phase one comes in, you can move stuff around, but you know, I'm excited. It, it's a, the day that Genesis block goes alive. I mean, it's a, it's one of the biggest steps for Ethereum since the original ETH one Genesis block. Yeah, so even though there's three ETH maxis on this live stream, there's definitely some diversity. I'm not an ETH maxi, David. Okay, that's what you, that's what you say. David, uh, I thought you were a big Bitcoin maxi. Yeah, closeted <laughs> apparently, allegedly. Um, <laughs> but there is some diversity of opinion. I guess there is a diverse, diversity of opinion here. But uh, Eric, what you just said is that, you know, treat staking as another yield farm, right? But me and Ryan are, are hammering this drum as like, it's your patriotic duty to, to stake. Like this is a political statement. And so I kind of want to get into the, to that topic. But before we get there, we have to take a quick break to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. If you want to live a bankless life, you need to get a hardware wallet. There is no alternative for storing your crypto in a self-sovereign fashion. That's why I have four ledgers that I use to manage my different crypto assets using the Ledger Live account as well. Ledger Live is like your home base for managing your Ethereum, DeFi, and crypto accounts. It does a really good job of aggregating all of your different Ethereum wallets if you are the type of person that uses more than one, but you can also add other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Cosmos or whatever your preferred blockchain is. And then it will display an aggregate portfolio of all your accounts at the main page. One thing that Ledger is doing a really good job of is enabling all the money verbs that me and Ryan talk about with the Bankless Skill Cube enabled in the Ledger Live app. So right now in the Ledger Live app, you can buy, sell, lend, swap, and stake your crypto assets, which is doing a really good job of fulfilling all of the money verbs in the Bankless Skill Cube. Something that's new to Ledger Live is Ledger Swap, where you can swap assets one for another directly inside the Ledger Live application, ensuring trustlessness in your financial activity on Ethereum and on Bitcoin. If you want to learn more about what you can do with a ledger, go to the blog post, The Power of Ledger Live on the Ledger website, where they share some of the more advanced things that you can do with your ledger that you might not have known about. There's a link in the show notes that will take you to the ledger shop where you can get your preferred ledger hardware wallets. I personally like the Ledger Nano X, but I also have both. They're both great options. When you own a ledger, you own your own assets in the way that they have been designed to be held by the user and the user alone. So go get your ledger today to make sure that you are as self-sovereign as possible. 
The Bankless State of the Nations are brought to you by Wiron. Wiron is DeFi's first self-building community-run project, which I just get really, really excited about. Wiron is a system that seeks out yield in DeFi, and it does that in a number of different ways. Uh, a very aggressive way is with the vaults, where you can deposit your preferred asset of choice and different DeFi experts will come in and generate a strategy for what to do with your deposited token, right? And so it'll go find ways to get yield in that deposited token in DeFi. For those who want to just earn yield on their stable coins, the earn system is for you, where you can deposit your preferred stable coin and Wiron will go and figure out which money market on DeFi in DeFi is producing the best interest rate, whether it's DYTX, it's Compound or Aave, it looks around DeFi to see where the yield is coming from and it directs stable coins automatically so you don't have to. Check them out at yearn.finance to get started and also check out the stats page to see what other people are doing as well. All right, guys, we are back with Eric Connor and we left the conversation off with the, the difference of opinion as to whether it is your patriotic duty to stake or whether you should just treat uh, staking as a another yield farm. Uh, and so uh, the bankless community probably already understands and what, what Ryan and my opinions are with staking. Um, but, but Eric is offering an alternative view where you kind of just treat it as like a profit maximalist. You just try to treat it as a yield farm. Eric, you want to elaborate on that on that uh, take? Yeah, I so I don't think altruism really exists when it comes to this stuff, or I don't think it should, right? And I, I think I would be a bit of a hypocrite. I've been calling out Bitcoin for their monetary policy not being sustainable once the caps hit. And the argument I hear back a lot is not a lot, but like one of the arguments back is miners will be a bit altruistic. And I, I don't agree with that. I, I think incentives run this world, this crypto world that we're in. And I think if we're not seeing enough stakes, it's because we got the incentives wrong. And I, I will say, I don't think the incentive curve has been revisited since the DeFi craze. And the reality is people are earning, maybe not on straight e-staking, but you can put your ETH in compound, draw stable coins with a very safe liquidation price and net 10 to 15% on your, on your capital at that point. So I don't think the incentive curve was really thought about post DeFi yield farming era. And I think that's something as a community we need to think about, you know, what is the ideal target for staking? I'm not really sure. It seems like the devs and researchers think it's around like 10 million long-term, but you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say. Um, I actually recently submitted an issue on the ETH2 uh, GitHub today, the spec GitHub, um, that I think we should put a max date in and just kind of bypass this minimum threshold because it seems a bit arbitrary to me. But, you know, I, I'm personally thinking about this as just another yield farm. I want to experiment a little you know, it's complicated. Like running this stuff isn't easy. You need to generate your own keys. You need to know what you're doing. You need to have uptime. Um, so I want to give it a little bit of time and see. I'll run a validator too early just because I want to be a part of the Genesis block, but that's kind of where my head's at. So Eric, in summary, you don't want to miss Genesis block. You're going to be there for sure. But you don't think that ETH2 staking in general should, should um, rely on any form of altruism or any sort of like patriotic duty to uh, the theory of nation. David, like, maybe I'll play the role of moderator a little mm -hmm. bit here. So like, David, do you agree with, with Eric's take there or like what, what's, uh, what's maybe a counter take to that? Yeah, I 100% agree that you have to start with incentives. Like this whole, this is a crypto economic system. And so if you don't get the economics right, then you don't have the system. And so the first and foremost, you don't, there's no such thing as a meme secured blockchain, right? You, you are, secured by just 
facts by science whatever, to whatever degree that you can be secured by that and that means incentives right so you know show me the incentives and i'll show you the outcome if we have a if we have incentives that secure blockchain then we have a secure blockchain however once the incentives are placed that is actually the substrate in which a political statement can emerge out of right that is where the meme comes from like a lot of people will comment on like how bitcoin is just a meme coin but Bitcoin is a meme coin because they have everything else right. Like the meme is allowed to emerge out of that, out of that success. And if it starts to, if that success starts to falter, if the incentives start to become misaligned, then the meme pops. But the idea, the purpose is to grow like the social layer around staking. And so once we do have the staking correct, we get to rally the flag and say like, yo, we got staking nailed. Like we got the incentives down. Now we get to uh, generate like a social hype layer, the narrative layer around staking saying like, it is your duty to stake because the ETH devs and ETH researchers uh, figured out the right balance of incentives, we get to carry that banner. It's like, they figured it out. We have this perfectly secure blockchain. Everyone should stake because it is it, because we figured it out. And now that, now that we figured it out, you know, you can access that upside, right? Like part of the ethos of Ethereum is to spread out decentralization to everyone and, and allow blockchain validation by everyone. Would you say, would you say, David, that the part of the ethos in the Bitcoiner community is like, it is your duty as a Bitcoiner to hold? Yes. You right. hold. That's why the and 300 so meme is so strong with Bitcoiners, right? They are always about like, you know, hold the line, don't sell, stack the sats, right? And I feel like an equivalent... Uh, social layer for Ethereum could be about staking, right? Like you should stake. But you did, you did say something that might get back to Eric's point about like once, once it's right, right. once they get it right. Yes. And maybe that's a distinction, mm -hmm. Eric, that that you're trying to make. Or how would you respond to what David's saying there? Yeah. So I'll go back a little bit to like the social contract comment I made of we've always expected this, right? But one of the aspects of the social social contract, I don't think many of us thought about or expected was this unknown lockup period, right? So this throws a huge wrench into the incentives. So I, I agree with you, David, totally. Once, you know, the lockup's gone and we're kind of like ETH1's merged into ETH2 and staking is a little more vetted. At that point, I plan to stake all my ETH. Um, this, this lockup, this unknown lockup is a wrench in the system, right? And I, I personally think that the incentives should probably be a little bit higher early on to incentivize people to take this potential opportunity cost loss. I mean, you're talking, put it this way, right? What if, this is not financial advice, ETH pumps from 480 to 5K while your ETH is locked up, right? Mm -hmm. Now, everyone knows when this ETH is gonna unlock someday. What if the market just goes through a full cycle and dumps back before you can unlock your ETH on staking? you lost out on a ton of money, right? Yeah, maybe you got your 15 to 20% yield, but the opportunity cost is just amazingly high. And I think that's why we've only seen 100K ETH stake isn't there. That, you know, I'm not gonna say that the financial incentives behind ETH2 were more neglected than they were on the initial ETH1, because I don't think they were, they were thought about, but I still don't think they were thought about enough. And I think as a community, we should start having this conversation and I think they should change every phase. So before David replies to that, another, I guess, nuance I, I want to get your take on, right? So you gave the example, Eric, of the opportunity cost of ETH going to say $500 uh, or something per ETH. 5, but I've also, 5,000, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll be at 500 at the end of this uh, yeah. episode, right? It's happening right now. End of the stream. <laughs> All right, so 5,000. So, um, but, but there are other opportunity costs I think I've heard you uh, argue about, which is like on ETH1, 
right now, this wasn't the case in 2017, but on ETH one, you could do a hell of a lot with your ETH, right? Like there are yield farms, there are DeFi opportunities, there are ways to generate. Um, now you have to take like risk into account here, but I guess my question is, do you think that DeFi opportunities on Ethereum are almost a little competitive with uh, ETH staking, at least at this point? Yeah, I would say absolutely yes. And this is not something that was even considered, I would say a year and a half, two years ago. Um, so it needs to be taken into consideration. I mean, I'm, I'm currently yield farming. I have almost all of my ETH deployed in yield farms, earning on average about 15 to 18% any given week on my capital. Why would I take that ETH and put it into ETH2, lock it up for a year and earn the same amount, right? So I, I think we need to just be like, real about these conversations and understand what the competitive landscape looks like. And yeah, sure. DeFi yields have come down from hundred percent to 15, but I see them staying in the 10 to 15, 20% range for a while. Um, and the real question is what are, what is the sweet spot on ETH2 staking? I haven't really seen this answer. You know, is it 3 million? Is it 5 million? Is it 10 million? You know, what is that sweet spot? And then kind of like tune it around that point. And I think that that was attempted, um, but I don't think it was attempted considering DeFi. So, you know, are you going to lock up your ETH for 15% in DeFi? Or are you going to lock it up for 15% in ETH too? People are going to answer that different ways, right? If you have more technical expertise, you're probably going to take the staking side, more financial background, you're going to take the DeFi side. Um, but this wasn't even in consideration, you know, when we were first talking about staking. So David, what's your response to that? That uh, Eric is describing a very like um, like methodical investor type take on opportunity cost here. He, he almost sounds a little bit like more like a, a Raul Paul, right. right? When you had that conversation with Raul, it was like, mm -hmm. yeah, but like, where's what's my ROI? What's my yield right. for taking these sorts of risks? What's your response? Yeah, and, and again, we always have to take that perspective first, right? Because if you don't have the incentives, then you don't have anything, right? Everything is layered upon correct incentives. Uh, and so I, I think like if, if you are voicing these concerns, then like the, the rest of the Ethereum ecosystem should be paying attention that these concerns are being voiced. I do want to um, take a little bit of a side quest and talk about like uh, DeFi competing for ETH versus staking competing for ETH. Because like the if you focus in and on this very narrow viewpoint, you're like, oh, that's bad because like, DeFi is stealing security from Ethereum and Ethereum is stealing Ether collateral from, from DeFi. This has actually been in the Ether triple point in, uh, asset thesis since day one. Everything competes for ETH. Like this, it's a massive tug of war in all in all in every direction, right? And so I think what what Eric is is a fan of that I think would really offend Bitcoiners would be tinkering with incentives, like tinkering with uh, the right numbers, the right metrics, and that's kind of been the, the division between Ethereum and and Bitcoin. That that's kind of where we draw the lines. Like Ethereum is okay with tinkering to get the re the uh, most optimal outcome, and Bitcoin is like no tinkering ever. And what it is is, is what it is. Um, and so there, there's obviously values into both sides. And I think what, what Eric said is at once we get to phase 1.5, where Ether staking on the phase zero beacon chain can merge with the rest of Ethereum, that's when we actually start to get hit that drum a little bit harder, with, which, which is like, you know, staking is for you. Like you can stake at home. Like it's, it's you protect Ethereum by doing that at home. And, and I kind of see this one and a half, two year period where 
we are, it's an experiment. Uh, we are learning how to stake. Like people are learning how to run a node. People are learning how to stake at home. Clients are learning how to make their clients easier to use. Staking becomes more, uh, you know, and more accessible because right now staking is not easy. Like, and, and almost intentionally so because it acts as like a filter to make sure that only the technically competent can get to that point. Uh, but that filter and that barrier comes down. And I think that's what I'm going to do over this next like year and year and a half is while it gets easier and easier to stake and the barriers become lower and lower and lower, I'm going to try and build up the memes to get better and better and better. So more people can get convinced that staking is, is for them at the point where it becomes right. Yeah. And here's something interesting too, right? Let's go on the total other side. We're, we're at phase one and a half, you know, maybe phase two, it's one click staking on Coinbase on your local computer, whatever. We also don't want to overpay, right? So again, let's, what is that number? We need to find what are we okay with from a security perspective of East staked? The curve should get us steeply to that and then drop off because if there's no value to 50 million East staking, why are we incentivizing it, right? There should be zero incentivization up there and we should push that back down to a lower number. So, you know, I don't want to also, it might seem hard to get there now because the barriers are high. The opportunity cost is high, but once it becomes easier, we don't want to go on the other end of the spectrum where we're overpaying for security and we're just repeating, you know, the block reward drop from five to three and three to two, and we're, we're back at square one. So I, I think getting it right on both ends is very important. Now, Bitcoiners will say that you actually don't know how much security is the adequate amount of security, and therefore you should try and, and strive for as much security as possible at all times. How would you respond to that? I mean, I agree. I actually agree on proof of work. It's very hard to do. Like, you know, when I wrote the EIP 1234 to reduce um, the rewards from three to two, it was very hard, like, to come up with an analysis of what is proper security. I, I compared it to Bitcoin in my, like, EIP and my analysis. Um, I think that changes on proof of stake, though. Like, it's easier to know, like, how many validators you need, you know, I'm not going to get, I can't get into the details, not technical enough, but uh, um, for a malicious attack to take over and you can, you can better understand the economic impacts of an attack and slashing people and stuff like that. So it feels to me like it would be easier to come up with this number. And again, I've seen floated around like 10 mil or so. Um, but I, I agree with you on proof of work, but I do think it starts to change once you get to proof of stake. I think it's a little easier to quantify. It's funny. It's funny to me that you'd say that that's the Bitcoiner position too, a little bit, David, because um, like that may be what they they talk about, and I hear that. But like, if you look at their issuance policy and their security budget, it doesn't match. like it doesn't match, right? <laughs> if you just said that Bitcoiners are trying to way. optimize for security, right, mm -hmm. and they're cutting security in half every four years, it, it, the thing that Bitcoin is is strongest in, which is not. The market for its own block space ethereum even surpasses bitcoin there but in the market for its asset and they're choosing to right. cut that in half right um that to me doesn't yeah. jibe and that's but <laughs> why, that's why we're here in ethereum <laughs> right maybe we'll, we'll talk to dick carter a little bit about that i think we have before <laughs> next week all right well so th that that to me makes sense so i think you guys are both playing uh as both ethereum patriots playing at kind of uh, different sides of, of the risk spectrum here. And uh, Eric, even though you're not going to kind of go all in day one, which is like prudent investing. Mm -hmm. And by the way, guys, like um, we've said it before, but there are a lot of risks yep. to staking ETH at this stage. Mm -hmm. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone. But there are some whales out there, right, who have tons of ETH. And they could be doing something, mm -hmm. right? 
like they don't have to put it all in, but they could be doing something, try to fire up a node, try to go down this path. And I think you guys are agreeing there, but over time, Eric, I bet you, you, you will be just as patriotic as David is over here on the, on the ETH staking memes as a uh, kind of phase one draws to it, draws to a close when we get into like these future phases. Um, let's, let's talk about the ETH bull case, right? Cause let's see what happens when you get three bulls in here. Mm-hmm. If Ethereum's bull case played out to say the nth degree, if it was maximally successful, let's uh, talk about that scenario. What 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 would that look like, Eric? To you, like a maximally successful Ethereum and Ether over the next say bull cycle to the next three to five years. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's that DeFi starts to th- truly threaten the traditional financial market, right? So, you basically, how I've always envisioned it is, I don't really see DeFi as, you know directly usurping the traditional financial system. I see them running in parallel and then people seeing the benefits of it over the traditional financial system. So to me, the mega bull case for ETH, you know, next five years or whatever is this realization of, Hey, maybe I don't need my bank. Maybe DeFi is fine. I can manage, you know, it's not hard to use a ledger, use MetaMask. Like it's easier than logging into Chase or whatever bank you use. Um, And a large amount of money starting to come over And that starts waking up the traditional finance market, right? And then they start saying, okay, well, what's going on here? And they start looking into it. And it's kind of this like positive feedback loop at that point. Okay. What's funny is I think that's kind of like your personal story too, right, Eric? Right? Like you're just, I think, projecting your personal story and saying, hey, I'm going down this path. I've been down this path. And I think there's going to be a lot more like me. Um, We talk about in Bankless, like two points of flipping, right? There's, There's one sort of flipping where suddenly you look at your net worth and you're like, oh my God, I have more crypto net worth than I have like fiat existing traditional finance system network, right? That's flipping one. And then flipping two comes later when you're like, oh my God, I don't even use my bank account anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't need it. I, I just have a few bills that I pay from it, but right. my banking services have largely shifted over to, to crypto. Have you passed both of those hurdles? I have. Yeah. It actually took me, it was very first to hurdle one. Hurdle two took me a while. Um, so I <laughs> just I the last cautious. couple of years, right. As DeFi yeah, has developed the I last mean, years. Yeah. Uh, hurdle two was actually just the last six, six, nine months, 12 months, something like that. So recent within the last year. And the difference was the yield, right? Like why do I have my cash sitting in a savings account earning point? four percent or whatever when i can put it in DeFi, and now i will caveat this with there are still risks obviously like we still see DeFi protocols getting hacked i personally diversify across like eight different DeFi protocols so yeah if one goes down hacked you know it's not the end of the world there's also nexus mutual insurance you can buy and cover and all this stuff but yeah i've i've taken the plunge on both and i just yeah i mean i use my traditional bank account just to pay bills i i keep all my stable coins now in different vaults across defi and you know the interest earned maybe i'll put back in traditional banking to pay some bills but other than that it's to me i feel comfortable in the, like why why keep it in traditional eric finance? you've been around crypto for a long time like before Ethereum, like, wasn't this the whole freaking vision for the whole thing from the very start? Do you remember like back in 2013, we'd see like Olaf Carlson, we, and he was like, I'm going to live on Bitcoin for a year. Right. (laughs) And like, he stopped doing that because it sucked so bad (laughs) because of volatility. But now you are actually living banklessly Mm -hmm. without a bank on crypto. 
And like, no one's talking about it. That, that's what's crazy to yeah. me. Like mainstream hasn't caught on to this yet, but this yeah. is the crypto. Has this been the crypto dream from, from inception? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is what initially attracted me to Ethereum. So like I was day trading Bitcoin in 2013, Mt. Gox happened, everyone lost their money. I was in IRC chats where a bunch of people lost their money. And we said, okay, wait, why are we trading centralized assets on decentralized exchanges? <laughs> and that led me into the wormhole. So yeah, yeah, that's what I've always been here for. It amazes me the reliance on centralized service services that come from the Bitcoin. You can't, you cannot live in a bankless community on Bitcoin. You just can't. So, you know, Ethereum is offering that and it's powerful. And yeah, yields aren't always going to stay up where they are now, but for the medium future, I think we're going to see much higher competitive yields because a lot of it's driven by speculation, right? And that at the end of the day is one of crypto's strongest use cases right now is speculation. Yeah, especially as the, the greater macro world falls into zero and negative interest rates, like just the juxtaposition right. there is insane. Eric, you started this conversation talking about how when you said when you read the Ethereum white paper, you saw DeFi. And so I want, I want and part of this uh, take is that it, this is a little bit of semantics is like, what is DeFi? What is Ethereum? But to me, the entire point of Ethereum and crypto at large is to produce DeFi, right? Like Ethereum is DeFi. And if we get any value out of this whole entire, whatever this whole entire crypto thing is, it's DeFi. And the reason why Bitcoin itself is valuable is because it is an instantiation of DeFi, right? It's all DeFi. It's DeFi, 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 whatever, whatever that is. That's the whole point. Does, do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I totally do. I even think that, you know, we're seeing like an NFT craze on Ethereum. I kind of say that's an extension of DeFi. I mean, the composability of DeFi and using ETH and using DAI in the NFT markets is DeFi. Um, but yeah, that's how I've always seen it. I, I personally don't really see long-term other use cases. I know a lot of people disagree with me on that. Um, there's a lot of people that still believe vision. I'm, I'm just not there. I think when I heard about the ability to program your money, it just clicked. And I, I don't think, so Ryan, you, you've mentioned a lot, like why hasn't the mainstream picked up on this? You know, I think this idea of programmable money really only just, you it has to click with you. I don't, yeah. I've, I've struggled explaining it to people, but then once I've shown it to people recently, it's slowly started to click with them. And I don't think until people really see the benefits, it's almost something like you can't force on people, right? So until you kind of have that aha moment, you start using it and say, wow, the, you know, the benefits are truly here of this system. Um, you know, we might not actually see that mainstream media until then, which might take some time. Yeah, that's a good take. All right, Eric, we're going to conclude with um, a couple of like just quick hit questions. Right now, I'm looking at the uh, Ether Launchpad. And when David and I put out that post yesterday, it was kind of a call to action, right? Mm -hmm. So we are at about 100,000 ETH staked in the contract. We need about 424,000 more if we're going to hit the December 1st date. And we need that within the next seven days because a week out, the date will start to be pushed out further and further potentially. Do you think we hit it? Do you think we get to that mark and we launch December 1st or not? I don't think so. I think it's going to come a week after because people are going to realize what the yields will actually be and start to flow in. So I, I don't think we're going to hit it on that day, but it's going to be shortly after. Okay. 
So it doesn't, right. yeah, so whatever, it's always going to be afterwards. It's not going to be before because there's no incentive to go in early, right? You also kind of want right. the, the information. You, you kind of want to be fashionably late, right? You're not too late, exactly. but you're definitely not early. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to do me. Do you think there's a chance, Eric, that it could come down to, do you remember the, the great yam migration mm. where suddenly <laughs> it was like this rush the last like three to, you know, four hours uh, and then everyone kind of piled in at the end. Do you think, think something like that could happen as well? It could. I mean, I definitely think because there is no incentive to go early, people are waiting till the last minute. Um, but in like the yam situation, it was a, Hey, let's save the protocol. It's not quite like that on, you know, for this it's, it's more optics than anything. So I think we're going to see, you know, what happens if we don't hit it, right? Okay. Now we know how much we need and people start quoting APYs, hey, you could earn 30% because there's only X amount in here. And that's going to start, I think, attracting people. And kind of right now, it's like a game of chicken, I would say. Who's going to go first? Who wants to go first? Um, but we'll get there. I think it'll just be slightly after. And what then, is the best way that you've uh, found to stake so far, Eric? Is it just, you know, you go through the guides that are available, you watch maybe Hudson Jameson's video and you stake at home, or are there other avenues? Yeah, Hudson's live stream was pretty good. Um, I've just so I've been running multiple test nets to this point, so I've pretty familiar with Prism. Um, their Discord's very helpful, so I, I've just become comfortable with that. Um, I am very excited that Ledger today just announced that they're going to have support for E2 staking keys on Ledger. So one of the things I felt uncomfortable with personally is generating keys in terminal. I, I just I'm not a command line terminal guy, and the fact that I'm like generating these keys and just like copy pasting code in and like I'm trusting this process yeah. with a lot of my money. It feels very I foreign. Feel comfortable. Exactly. And like, if I can do that through a ledger, I'll personally feel more comfortable. So I'm, I'm excited for that. And you know, just a quick note on ledger, David, before you go is uh, thanks to ledger for sponsoring the show. Of course, as always, <laughs> I think they're going to be running some black Friday deals. And what Eric is talking about is I, not their um, nano product, right? But their newer product, um, the ledger, that they ledger offer stake on. the ledger, the ledger S, the ledger S, and the, X, the big one, um, the big one, X. X, and that is going to be available possibly for some Black Friday deals next week. Oh so if you're looking to pick some of those up next week, might be the time. So Eric, when the genesis of a phase zero actually kicks off, how much ETH will be in it at Genesis? I mean, 528 or whatever, right? Well, so here's the weird caveat is if my issue I submitted goes through okay, and we have that. a, yeah, yeah. So basically what if we don't care about the minimum deposit amount and we want to put a hard date in? So I put mm -hmm. December 15th. It seems to be getting very rough consensus. Like who knows how we actually do this stuff, right? Um, but if that goes in and we just say, hey, this date, no matter what, I would say like 300,000. But if that doesn't, I think at Genesis it's going to be at the very minimum of mm -hmm. 520. Very, very and, but th then I think though, we're going to see a larger influx. So if you think about this from like game theory, right? You kind of want to know who's going in, how much is in there. And once like the Genesis happens, if you're like a profit maximalist, right? Then you're like, okay, well, if I go in now, I know exactly what my yield's going to be. Um, as opposed to now, you're not quite sure. You could be right. like, what if 10 million come in at the last second? You could be yeah. anywhere between twenty-five and five percent return. Right. And and to clarify, your uh, the EIP you submitted, it's basically removing the five twenty-eight k threshold, basically, right? So that would lower that down. 
which means that there would be uh, higher rewards, essentially higher interest paid out to, if it was lower than that. Why did they put a, um, why, why was a threshold put in place to begin with? Yeah, so there's a couple attack vectors, one being like a gatekeeper attack. So like mm -hmm. if the stake is too high on the E2 side, there can be some censorship. That, if it's too centralized, there could be some censorship that can happen. Um, but it seems like the stake going over so far is pretty decentralized. And like, that's an economic analysis that happened when ETH was, I think, 80 bucks. So not as relevant anymore as well. Um, so yeah, this would basically say, hey, if we didn't hit it and we hit this date instead, just go with it. So, yeah. you know, if, you, if you're at 200K, you're talking, mm -hmm. I think like 30, 35% return, which would be nice for those that are doing it. We're doing it live. Fuck it, we're doing it live. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Eric, so you've been through the cycles before, and so we couldn't let you go without asking you the classic question of when are all times high, when are all time highs for ETH price and at what price will it be? December 2021, 2,500 bucks. Ah, so you, you, you know this. <laughs> it is known. How, how did you come to those numbers, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I think one thing people underestimate is every cycle you go through, it gets harder to pump higher market caps, right? So everyone expects the same, you know, crazy 10,000%. And yeah, Bitcoin's done that. I just think it becomes harder to push this market as shorting options are online. There's more liquidity. There's more access to all this stuff. Um, I don't, I personally don't see an insane target for the next run. Like a lot of people do. I know a lot of people are calling for 10 K, you know, I, I'm going to, I've learned my lessons. I'm going to exit a little bit earlier than people are anticipating this time. Fair enough. Fair enough. I've, and I've also recently heard a take where, I compared Ethereum's current cycle to Bitcoin's last cycle, um, drawing the metaphor that Ethereum is just one cycle behind Bitcoin. Does that resonate with you or is that kind of just is it that stale data? I think it's more about like the maturity of the market as a whole, to be honest. I mean, I, I think we just saw this with DeFi, like even in 2017, when ETH was pumping, there were really no options to short it. The liquidity was pretty low. Institutions weren't involved. If we look at what DeFi just went through, we went through an entire market cycle in like three weeks because there was more liquidity. There was access to shorting. I think, you know, larger players were involved. So I think, I don't think you can really compare ETH's current cycle to Bitcoin three years ago because all this exists for ETH now that didn't exist three years ago. Um, you know, there's futures, all this stuff. So um, I, I don't think the market is that simple. I think it always throws a, a, a you know, kind of throws something different at you. Who knows? It, it could go to 80 tomorrow. It could go to 50K tomorrow. It could, I'm, I'm going to stick somewhere in between at my 2,500 number. Fair enough. Old prediction though, that is 2,500 in a year, which would be a 2X, I guess, ish all time high. What's interesting to me about the, the 2016 last bull market comparisons is I remember entering 2016, uh, entering 2017 rather, and uh, Bitcoin price was around 400. Um, different market cap to ETH, but like ETH prices floating in that 400 range. And it did a run up to 20K. Totally different numbers because obviously the market caps are wildly different, but it is interesting could have a lot of play here for ether eric it has been a pleasure having you on thanks for guiding us through the culture through staking through our patriotic uh duties discussion and through the investor mindset as well really appreciate everything you are doing 
And welcome back to Twitter, sir. How long are you going to hang out with us? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we'll see how crazy the bull market gets, right? But yeah, no, I'm going to stick around this time. But I appreciate you guys having me. This is a lot of fun. All right. It's been great to have you. All right, guys, risks and disclaimers. As always, ETH is risky. So is crypto. DeFi is too. If you choose to stake with ETH, uh, keep in mind that it is especially risky in this first phase zero. But we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but thanks for joining us on another episode of State of the Nation.